Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. How many of you uh, did my homework? All right. All in one setting. Half. All right. Those of you that read either all or part, anything surprised you? Um, anything you forgot? Anything you didn't know was in there? Uh, general impression? What did you think as you read it all together? There, so you realized it was more. You were more confused than you intended to be. You're about to ask questions that we'll get into when we get there. General general impressions. We'll answer that, Jack. But it may be June of 2014. We'll get there. All right. Anybody else? Just general impressions. Reading it. The thoughts, questions that came to your mind. That's a good question, Glenn. Who else? No. We'll talk about it in a minute. We'll talk about that tonight. Yeah, it just, and then the emails will begin, all right? Um, Mary Lynn always, she won't say much in here sometimes, and then I'll get this really deep question. It's like, you should have asked that. That was really good. Um, why did he pick out the seven churches? That's a really good question we're going to talk about tonight, Wayne. We're going to, Glenn, we're actually going to talk about that tonight, and we're going to talk about it tonight. No, no, I, I, I want general impressions. Because reading a book as a whole, sometimes, even like the book of Ephesians, you'll pick out verses here and there, and then you read as a whole, you go, oh, I forgot that was in there. Or even like, I stand at the door and knock, and he who answers and opens, and I will come in. We forget the context that verse is in. Um, we hear about the millennial stuff. We hear about the beast. We hear about the dragon. But what, what is going on in all of that? We hear about the worship and all that. Did you notice worship plays an integral part in much of the book? The, Jesus and how he's portrayed in different pictures. And so I just kind of I wanted you to do that to get a big picture kind of thing. Let me tell you about um, a great resource online that you can use. It's called MyStudyBible.com. Okay. MyStudyBible.com. We have any Lifeway employees in here? Okay, good. It is produced by Lifeway, and it's one of the most cutting-edge best things they've done in a long time. Okay? It is the Holman Christian Standard Bible with, the, with their study Bible notes on the side, online for you. Okay? So it is as if you have your own study Bible. Alan, show them the study Bible. That's it. That's online for free. Word studies, questions that will ask a question out on the side. Well, why does it say, like, one of the questions I know, I just looked at Revelation 1, what we're looking at today. One of the questions was, well, it says all this must soon come to pass. It's been 2,000 years. So there's an explanation of some things there. Just a little note for you. It's a good resource. Home of Christian Standard Bible is, is a good Bible to read from, and it's a good, it's got some resources. The Bible's in the middle. There's a place you can log in and make your own notes on one side. There's a place on the right you can, uh, that their notes are. There's some things at the bottom. So uh, just a little note. All right? We're going to study the book of Revelation because it's important to us. And what I want us to realize is these are words directly from God. At least that's what the first eight verses of this book tell us. In fact, the first three verses can be seen as giving us the main idea of the entire book. 
If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it is the outline, essence, main idea. Uh, Eli's been working on, in English, the main idea of a paragraph. So you have to find that sentence that explains the rest of the paragraph. Well, Revelation 1, 1 through 3 is the sentence that explains the rest of the book. And it starts out saying, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take three points, and there are three things that I want you to notice in this first eight verses of the book. So we're going to do the first eight verses of the book, and then we will move on next week to the second part of chapter 1. But I want us to remember that this is God speaking from heaven's throne to us. Now, if that's the case, I don't think God sent this book or sent this revelation in order to just continually confuse. I don't think that God's intention was to say, here's some words, now y'all just argue about what it means for 2,500 years. That he had a real message for his people of then and for his people today. Now, the job we have is to weed through context that is completely different than our own. There is no way we can put ourselves in the minds of the first readers of this book. There is no way. We are removed from them by almost 2,000 years of history, and more has changed in the last hundred years than changed in the last 500, and more has changed in the last 500 than in the 2,000 combined. So our world is 2,000 years and infinitely more than that removed from them. So it's hard for us to grasp it. But that's the task of studying God's Word, is to say, what did God mean? What does He mean? And what will that mean for me? It is to read it, to understand it, and then to live it. I don't believe Revelation is just a book for us to debate. It is a book that ought to be used as encouragement. Now, the reason I believe that is because of the first thing we're going to notice here. Notice the blessing that is here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show whom? His servants. Who are his servants? Us, them, believers from the moment it was written until the end of time. So, that's usens. What must soon take place? Now, let me give you a, kind of an interesting little side note here. Revelation 1 begins this process of bringing allusions to the Old Testament that we don't readily recognize as Old Testament. Now, if you just look at Old Testament citations, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation total. There are 285 Old Testament citations in those 404 verses. If you go to allusions, the allusion just means that it kind of references it. It may not quote it, but there's a reference to it. There are 550 that someone has counted. All that to say this. Revelation 1 begins with this allusion about this that must soon take place. It's an allusion to the book of Daniel when Daniel talks about 
that there are these things that will soon take place. And so what John is saying here is not that in some time in the future all this will soon take place. What he's saying is what Daniel prophesied is happening. The Messiah has come and the kingdom is being established. It's kind of like, um, well, theologians call it an already not yet tension. If you've been in our discipleship classes, I talk about this sometimes. That we already have that Jesus has risen from the grave and that he is reigning. But we do not yet have all that that means. For you personally, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've given your heart to Jesus. You have already had your sins washed clean. If you were to pass away tonight, then you are already clean before the Lord. You don't have to do any more scrubbing. But you are not yet completed in him. Amen? I mean... We have what we receive from the Lord, but that doesn't mean he's finished with us. And so in the same way, the kingdom, what John is saying, basically, if you look at the original language, he's alluding to Daniel and he's saying, it's starting, but it's going to continue and there's a lot of stuff yet to come. And so we have that. And then he says, um, we're not going to make it through the book if I keep doing that at every two words, right? All right. He made it known by sending his angel. Here you go, Glenn. To his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. So we have this this pattern. It goes from God to Jesus, from Jesus to the angel, from the angel to John, and from John to us. Who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is here. Now, I know in your new international, if you have it, it says near. The concept is it's here. We're in it. All right. Now, I want you to notice the blessing here. And there are three things that are blessed in this thing. And we'll get to those in just a minute. But a couple of things before we get there. First of all, Revelation is the only book in the Bible that directly promises a blessing for people who read it. It is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing for those who read it. So if that's the case, we need to understand that the word of God here is intended to comfort and encourage and challenge people to be faithful in the midst of trials and sufferings. So what are the blessings that we get from reading this book? Well, the first blessing we get is that we are blessed because we get to understand more about Jesus. So we're, the blessing is understanding Jesus. I mean, when it says at the beginning that he are going to unveil, we're going to show, we're going to uncover, we're going to reveal, we're going to disclose a little bit about Jesus. Here's an interesting thing. That word revelation, does anybody know how many times it occurs in the book, the whole book? Once. The very first word is the only time it's used. And what it means there is that it is going to reveal who Jesus is. It's... um. You remember The Wizard of Oz, right? You remember that movie? Do you remember that movie uh, um, when um, the curtain gets pulled away and the great wizard is revealed to be this man over there? And one of those great lines of movie history, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Well, Revelation is the pulling the curtain back and giving us a glimpse. Now, the difference is in The Wizard of Oz, they were disappointed in what they saw. But... In Revelation, 
pulling the curtain back a little bit is going to blow our mind with how great Jesus is. So we get to understand who Jesus is. It's signified by his angel. Signify there means to to show by sign and symbol, vision and revelation. And that the entire book is going to be a declaration of who Jesus Christ is, of the power that he holds, the rescue that he's bringing, and the appearing that will happen. So there's blessing in understanding Jesus. Here's the second thing. There's blessing in just reading and hearing it. Now, this says this a little bit differently because we don't think of it this way. It says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. Blessed there. Does anybody know what the word blessed means? What does blessed mean? I ask in the four o'clock, and Miss uh, Lothoda said blessed means blessed. Happy. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the attitude sometimes say happy is the person. Happy is okay. It's not the best, but it's okay. Forgiven. Is that what you said? Something good. A good technical definition is blessed is receiving something from the hand of God or receiving favor from God or being congratulated by the Lord. Receiving celebration from the Lord. Now think about that. The idea behind it is that the Lord celebrates with us in our accomplishments. And there are other places in Scripture, Zephaniah 3, where it talks about the Lord singing over us, dancing over us, that he's passionate about us. But there's this idea that the people that read this book, the people that understand it, the people that hear it, are people who are to be celebrated and congratulated. So, congratulations, celebration, right? Uh, We know what that looks like. We know what it means to be celebrated, or what it means to celebrate. I was... Listening to the radio today, and I don't know whether y'all are aware of this or not, but there's a football game this weekend in Gainesville, Florida. And Tennessee is going to be playing the Florida Gators. Now, it hurts me to even use this statistic, but Tennessee has not beaten Florida since I was 28 years old. I mean, I am wasting my life away waiting for them to win. And the last time they won... A guy kicked a 50-yard field goal to win the game at the last second. He was a graduate of Hendersonville High School. Anybody know who it is? James Wilhoyt, okay? James Wilhoyt kicked a field goal, no time's running out. So today they had him on this show interviewing him. I I think that all the Tennessee fans are bringing out all these old, like, maybe this year we can just conjure enough stuff up that we'll win the game. And so this guy calls in and says, let me tell you where I was. He said, I was getting ready to leave Iraq. I'd been deployed to Iraq, and we were coming back. And I was in a telephone booth talking to my dad in Franklin, Tennessee. And he was giving me play-by-play over the last five minutes that we had just enough time before the plane was going to take off to come back. Because I knew once I got on that plane, I wouldn't know till I got back. So he said, I'm on the phone, and as I'm on the phone, they say they're lining up for a last-second field goal, and mortar shells start going off around the telephone booth. And he said there were like ten guys in the booth with me, and they all scattered except for me and another Tennessee fan, and we just determined we weren't leaving the booth. 
And he said, I had that up to my ear, and I heard mortar shells going, and all of a sudden, I hear my mom yell, He made it! We won! He said, that guy and I began to hug each other and jump up and down, and we ran out of that telephone booth as fast as we could and got to the plane. He said, we celebrated that victory. All right? Scripture says that we who study it, who read it, who investigate it, are to be like those people that are celebrated. We're celebrated. We're congratulated. We're blessed by God, favored by God. Okay? And so there's a blessing in public. Notice what it says here. It says, blessed to the one who reads. That's a singular, by the way. And to those who hear it. Now, this is one of those cultural things. Why does it say blessed is the one who reads it and to the many who hear it? They couldn't read. They didn't have it like this. What are we reading? We're reading it in a bound leather or bonded leather or imitation leather or we didn't even try to make it look like leather cover, right? They had a letter that was sent to each church, and the way they would hear this is someone would stand up and read the letter to them. Everybody get around. We've got a letter from John. He wants me to read to y'all. So blessed is the one who reads it and to those who hear it. Now, here's another reason that it's so important for us to try to get back in the mindset of the people back in the first century if we can. They would have just listened and known what he was talking about. Now, that didn't mean they fully comprehended everything that God intended. But they wouldn't have been stopping. Hey, what does he mean by the dragon there? Why did he only, why did he say that? Or why did he say, you know, they would, oh. And we think, well, how in the world could they know? Well, I mean, imagine somebody from their generation got shipped here and listened to us talk even translated in their language. They wouldn't have a clue what we're saying some of the times. Clichés we use, symbolism we use, things that we say. And so the people that spoke it and the people that heard it would be blessed. And here's the last thing about the blessing. There is blessing in obedience. Notice what it says in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads it. Blessed is the one who hears it and does what? Takes it to heart. Anybody have a different translation? Obeys it. Here's an interesting little fact. It says, the blessed are those who hear it, and it's a continual thing. And who keep it is the actual word, a continual thing. So it's not just enough to read it and study it. It's to live out the implications. What we hear, we must heed. What we believe, we must live. Does that sound like a good sermon series? Like taking things that we think we know, but we're not living out always, and calling it life apps or something, and doing some stuff, right? Don't be just hearers of the word. Don't just listen and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's what Revelation says, all right? So we need to notice the blessing. The blessing comes because God is going to reveal about Jesus, some things about Jesus that have previously been left hidden. 
because it comes to those who read it and understand it. There is blessing there and understanding more about him. And there's blessing in obedience and doing what we know to do. Okay, so that's the first three verses. Then John begins the letter formal. And I want you to notice here God's greeting. I want you to notice God's greeting. Verse four says this. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Right. Notice the greeting here. John says this is to your seven churches. But who sends the greeting? God does. In fact, it's all three persons of the Trinity that send it. Now, I'll show you that in a minute. What we get here is that God loves the church. God loved the church, gave himself for her. Though it may become sick, though it may become unfaithful, God still loves the church. He died for his bride. He loves us individually, yes, but he loves the collective church, the body, the people of God. Now, the seven churches were historical churches in Asia Minor, in the vicinity of Ephesus. It would have been almost a mail route, okay? Uh, Many of you uh, know that mail carriers have a pretty specific route, and they follow it every day. You can see they come, they go, and that's why most people know pretty well what time of day their mail is going to be delivered, and if it gets delivered earlier or later, it means my mailman's off today. That's what it means, generally. Or something happened, right? Well, this would have been like a mail route. Now, in those days, they didn't have mail delivered every day. We may not either, right? Um, But they didn't have it delivered every day. But they would have had a, a circuit they would have gone. And so if you had mail, you could send it to these places, and it would go first here, then here, okay? They're all around the city of Ephesus, the book that he wrote Ephesians to. Uh... Somebody asked why seven. Um, you tell me, what does the number seven mean? Perfection, fullness. There, Fifty-four times in the book of Revelation the number seven is mentioned. Uh, we're going to see another one real soon here in a minute. We're going to talk about it. There were seven literal churches, but most believe that these seven literal churches are representative of problems and issues in all churches. There are some that believe you could say, well, my church is a Laodicea, or my church is a Philadelphia, or my church is a Smyrna, okay? There are some people that believe that, and there are some just say, these are common issues that develop in all churches, and you need to make sure you keep on guard against them. So in some ways, he is writing to these specific seven churches, and there are these specific problems happening there, but it's also, we can say universally, these are things the church has struggled with. Part of the reason that we're going to move slowly through the first parts of this book is because you, you can't take each of those churches, you can't put all seven churches together and say, let's just summarize it. I mean, those are important words of caution and wisdom that lead us further into understanding the rest of the book. Um, it's interesting because he starts with grace and peace. Uh, grace is a Greek concept. Peace was a Hebrew concept, and he puts those together right at the beginning. Um, 
And he, we see here that all of that is coming from a triune God, a trinity. So here's what I want you to see. As God's greeting is happening, it gives us some information about them. First of all, we see that the Father is perfect in his person. Okay? The Father is perfect in his person. Look what it says. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. This title is used only in the book of Revelation. We see it in chapter 4, we see it in chapter 11, we see it in chapter 16, and we see it here. And most believe that it is a paraphrase of an Old Testament name of God. Exodus 3.14. Anybody know what's going on there? Who's the main character of Exodus? Moses pretty early in the whole book of Exodus, so let's just say that he hasn't gone and rescued Israelites yet. He walks by a bush that is burning and not consumed, and God says, you're about to go deliver them. And Moses says, I can't do it. He says, you're my chosen. And he says, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. Now, that phrase is one of the most difficult words to translate in the Hebrew language. We just say, I am. Other translations say things like, it means, I am who I've always been. I will be who I've always been. Or I am the one who is and was and is to come. So right off the bat, we see this allusion to Exodus, this um, paraphrase. He is the God of the present, the past, and the future. And we said this last week, but the interesting thing is the title always begins in the present tense. There are some that say, well, that's not it completely, because what they did is they took Exodus 3, and then they did a play on a uh, contemporary saying that would have been around Ephesus about the Greek god Zeus. You remember Zeus, the powerful Greek god, the king of the gods. And they used to say in that day, Zeus was, is, Zeus will be. But they switch that formula. And they say, we serve the God who is and was and is to come. The idea there is he is eternally who he is. He will never be who he has never been, but he will always be who he has always been. And that's important. For people that are going through difficulty in the moment, it's important to know that the same God of 2,000 years ago and of 2,000 years, if he tarries from now, of all eternity, is here today. Robert Mounts, who is a biblical scholar, said this, An uncertain future calls for one who, by virtue of his eternal existence, exercises sovereign control over the course of history. So you have God as perfect in who he is, in his person. The second thing we see, the second person of the Trinity we see is the Spirit. And we see that the Spirit is perfect in his presence. Now you say, wait a minute, Lyle, I don't see anything about the Holy Spirit there. Where do we get the Holy Spirit out of this? Seven spirits. Anybody have the NIV with a little footnote there? You do, Teresa. What does it say at the bottom? Yeah, that's one of those translation things, is that the seven spirits are the sevenfold spirits. Uh, some people in their Bibles, they have a study Bible especially, they may cross-reference Isaiah 11.2 or Zechariah 4, 1 through 6. Um, 
And in there, the idea is, remember that number? That number seven means what? Completeness, perfection, wholeness. is not that there are seven individual spirits around, but that it is the sevenfold spirit. It is the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. And that this was a way to refer to the Holy Spirit of God. So what you have is the spirit who is residing before the throne and is service, um, servicing God, making sufficient us sufficient for every assignment, every challenge for the God who lives. So you have the spirit is perfect in his presence. He's always with us. And then you have the last thing, the son who is perfect in his provision. So you have God who is and was and is to come. You have the seven spirits before the throne. And then it says, and from Jesus Christ. And then it gives us all these characteristics about him. The son is placed last in the greeting for emphasis. The focus is on him. There is more explanation about him, right? His title is given and then explanation. That's because the focus of the book of Revelation is on whom? Jesus. I'll be saying that a lot because I don't want us to lose focus about who the book is about. And so it gives us these truths about him, and they are unbelievable truths. It says that he is perfect in his revelation. Now, I want to use that word not like this book, but in what he reveals. It says that he is the faithful witness, the reliable, credible, trustworthy testifier. By his perfect life, by his resurrection, he showed us in his perfect life the character of God. By his present activity, he shows us the concern of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. He and the Father are one. He is the faithful witness, perfect in what he reveals. You remember a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, we were talking about how we remix our prayers. And I said that our prayer Instead of, Lord, be with me, our prayer ought to be, Lord, let me be an accurate representation of who you are today. Lord, live through me. Let other people, when they see my life, say that is what the life of a child of God is like. So God must be like that. Jesus did that perfectly. What you saw in Jesus is the character of God. He is perfect in his revelation. He is perfect in his resurrection. It tells us after that he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus did what no person has ever done. He died, rose from the dead, and stayed alive. I used to have a professor at Union that said, I get upset when people say that Jesus resurrected Lazarus. He resuscitated Lazarus. He didn't resurrect him. And what's the difference? He died still, right? Jesus is the only one who came back and didn't die. Who died, then rose again, and hadn't died again, and isn't going to die again. Now, the great thing is, this scripture reminds us, but that doesn't mean that we won't ever be resurrected. That Jesus because of his death, burial, and resurrection, is the first fruits, the firstborn of that. 
He is first in time and importance as God's firstborn. That's why in verse 18, we'll read next week, he can say, and I love this, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That's why he can say that, because he is the firstborn of the dead. Here's the third thing. Not only is he perfect in his revelation, perfect in his resurrection, he is perfect in his rule. It says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a recurring theme in Revelation. It's in chapter 11, chapter 17, chapter 19. It could mean everything from earthly rulers to Satan and his subjects or believers, but at least it means one and two of that. Revelation 19, 16, we'll get to much later brings this aspect into into focus. Nothing is over Jesus. Everything is under Jesus. He rules over all. I I couldn't help. I'd been looking at this in the last couple of weeks. And this uh, morning I watched the Today Show. And they had the uh, Iranian president, uh, Abadinejad, on. And he just has this arrogance about him. Now, before we get too heavy on him, most world leaders have an arrogance about them. As if nobody can touch me. Well, here's the deal. They're all under the authority of Jesus. And so he's perfect in that way. The fourth thing, he is perfect in his redemption Somebody tell me, what does the word redemption mean? Yeah, to, to buy back, to pay the price, to, to, to give what is necessary to bring back. And it tells us here, and I love this. I, I love how it, how it does this. Um, it says in verse 5, to him who loves us. Now, if you have an older version, it may say to him who loved us, but that's not the best translation. It's to him who loves us. It's a present tense. It means that... He continually, always, forever loves us. And then it says, and has freed us from our sins. The idea there is, and I'm not going to get too deep into this, the word love is in present tense, which means always continual. The word loose there means something happened in the past that changed it forever. The idea there is the best translation is loose because it's in view of sin as a chain. Um. He uh, And it's, it's one of those already not yet that we talked about. He, he has loosed us from the sins, from sin's penalty. He is loosing us from sin's power, and he will loose us from sin's presence. But it is a done deal. It's like uh, Philip Bliss wrote in a hymn, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He's perfect in his redemption. And he's perfect in his reign. This is a beautiful picture. These blood-freed sinners are now flooding his kingdom. I mean, to be forgiven would be enough, but he does much more than that. 
drawing on Exodus again. John declares our induction into Christ's kingdom. We are part of his rule and reign. We are part of a land that he will be the king of. And we are not only just there, we are his priests. That means that we are now um, reigning with him. We have access to him and we get to serve him. And he says, as a result of that, because of that, there's in my Bible, there's a little hyphen there. Because of that, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Such a glorious salvation can only result in worship, praise and adoration, glory, dominion forever. Amen. It's an amazing picture of Jesus in five phrases. About who he is. And it sets the scene for the rest of the book. But they don't leave us right there. Verse 7. Here's the last thing I want you to notice. Notice Jesus' promised return. Look. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, said the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. I like songs about heaven. And I like songs about the return of Jesus. What's your favorite song about Jesus coming back? May have one coming again when we all get to heaven. What a day that will be. I'm a sucker for Andre Crouch. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Midnight cry. The king is coming. No. But the midnight cry there, the idea is that it's the last stroke. It's not necessarily a time frame, I think. Like traditionally when people have said it comes at the midnight hour, it means that it comes at the last second or the last moment. Not that time's running out for Jesus, but that he's waiting. So so we know it. we're coming again. Here's some things about him coming again. His coming will be seen. It says, behold, 25 times in Revelation, we have the angel saying to John or John saying to the churches, behold. Uh, And the translation of that be, hey, look up here. Come here. Look here. Look here. You're talking to your kids in my eyes. Come on. Look up here. Eyes up here. On Sunday morning, sometimes I'm tempted. Hey, back there. You come on up here with me. All right. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so that's what John's saying. Hey, hey, come on. Eyes up. When I when I was growing up, my pastor used to do that. Everybody, he'd be uh, he'd be preaching. All of a sudden, he'd go, "Hey, hey, come on up here." Like, well, yes, sir. What you... I was listening, but now I am. All right. So he's like, "Behold, watch this. He is coming." A messianic title. He is coming with the clouds. Literally, yes. But theologically, the clouds were a symbol of the presence of God. Um, Israel in the wilderness, law given at Sinai, uh, at the tabernacle, at the temple, the ascension, Daniel 7, chapter 13, Matthew 24, 30, also tells us that Christ will come with the clouds. And it says this, every eye will see. 
supernatural, historical, visible, universal. Jesus is coming and will know it. If somebody says, I think Jesus has come back, you say, no, he hadn't because I didn't see it. And you didn't either. And scripture says everybody will see it. Now, here's the second thing that's kind of interesting. His coming will be seen, but his coming will also bring sorrow. And that's what it says, right? It says, first of all, everyone will see him, including those who have pierced him. Now, here's the question. Aren't they dead? Yeah. So does that mean literally those who pierced him? Maybe. Maybe they're going to come out of the ground and say hello. Or maybe it just means those that have turned their backs on him. It doesn't really matter. The actual the idea and the point is everybody's going to see him. And there will be people there that will not be excited at his coming. It says they will mourn because of him. Now, this is where people that say that everybody's going to heaven and nobody's anything to worry about. The question becomes, then why is everybody crying or mourning? Not everyone, but lots of people at his appearing. It's because in that moment they will realize they're wrong. And they'll realize their issues. Here's what's interesting. John says, all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Sorrow will come. So shall it be. Amen. Giving reference almost to like what happens at the end of this book. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Here's the last thing. His coming will be in strength. In verse 8, there are eight names for Jesus. Now, one of those is kind of cut out of this version of my NIV, but I almost quote it when I say it because I'm so used to it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Okay? So you have Alpha and Omega. Most of you know the Alpha was the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega was the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying I am everything from A to Z. I'm the beginning and the end. Time is in my hands. I am the one who is and was and is to come. Emphasize God's eternality. And then this. This is an interesting thing. I am the Almighty. You know, that's a word we use a lot. You may not have any idea how many times the word Almighty is used in Scripture total. Ten. Ten. You might have any idea how many of those are in Revelation? Nine. Nine of them. It reveals his power. So you can take it to the bank. Jesus is coming again. You have God's word on it, and he is coming in power. Now, here's my concluding question for you. Are you ready? There's a story that Dr. Jerry Vines tells about a home for um, mentally disadvantaged or mentally disabled children, special needs children in Kentucky, the hills of Kentucky. And uh, somebody was talking with the lady that runs it today, and he asked, what are your biggest problems around here? She said, our biggest problem right now is we can't keep the windows clean. He said, you can't keep the windows clean? Why can't you keep the windows clean? They said, well, we had a Bible study with the kids, and we told them Jesus was coming soon. And we can't keep their noses and handprints off the windows. All they want to do is watch for him coming. 
So let me ask you, how dirty are the windows of your heart? Are you watching? Are you waiting? Are you ready? He's coming. I don't know if it's tomorrow. I don't know if it's 20 years from now. I don't know if it's 2,000 years from now. I know I got a dissertation to write, and if he came tomorrow, I'd be perfectly okay with that. That midnight cry would be fine right now. I could learn a lot more than I'm going to learn in my dissertation sitting at the feet of him. But are you ready? What are the conditions of the windows of your heart?